Did you know 90% of top performers have a high emotional intelligence and a higher than average annual income? As one of the most highly valued skill sets, emotional intelligence or EI is what distinguishes outstanding leaders. Deepen your EI skills today with the Daniel Goleman Emotional Intelligence course, a 12-week online course to develop your inner capacity, become a stellar leader, and build high-performance teams. Save your seat and $50 with the coupon code PODCAST. Learn more at courses.keystepmedia.com. That's courses.key stepmedia.com. Don't forget to enter coupon code PODCAST at checkout for $50 off your registration. When do you have the hardest time staying focused? It's the afternoon in my school at math time. And what makes you feel most distracted? I get a little hungry and my medicine runs out. So you notice a big difference when you have some medicine to help you focus? Mm-hmm. When do you feel like you can pay the most attention? In ELA or PE. What's ELA? English language arts? Yes. ELA is right after lunch, so I'm full, and also the teacher is, like, very nice. PE is fun, and you can concentrate on your work. When you're able to focus, how do you feel? I feel more confident. You're listening to First Person Plural, Emotional Intelligence and Beyond. I'm Daniel Goleman, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Hanuman and Liz. Hey, Hanuman, Liz. <laughs> Hi, Hi, Dan. Hey. <laughs> Hi, hey. You two were looking lovely on Zoom today. As always, as always. <laughs> Damn straight. Today, we're launching into a three-episode series on the topic of attention and focus. We're kicking things off with a conversation with my good friend, neuroscientist, Dr. Amishi Jha. Before we dig into your conversation with Amishi Jha, I'm curious if you'd both be willing to share a little bit about your own experiences. When do you struggle most with attention and focus? And when do you feel like you're your sharpest? Wow. For me, I think it has a lot to do with sleep. And when I'm uh, tired, I'm fuzzy. My, I lose focus. And uh, when I have meditated, which I like to do, I do it every morning. And I've had some coffee, which helps too. I feel really pretty sharp. I can second the sleep thing. And as a father of a four and a six-year-old, I'm pretty sure that attention and focus has been constantly compromised for me for the last many years. Concentration builds, you know, if you don't let it wane. And uh, so towards the end of a meditation retreat, that's actually probably the sharpest that I've ever felt is at the end of meditation retreats. You know, this really fits with what Amishi has found in her research, which is that attention is a muscle. We can enhance our focus the more we practice it. And meditation is definitely practicing focusing attention. 
Yeah, I can I can agree with the meditation and the coffee, to be quite honest. That's a huge, <laughs> huge boon for my focus as well. But I'm thinking about when am I my sharpest? And I think, you know, one, it has to do with anxiety. When I am in an anxious state, my attention and my focus is severely compromised. Um, but in terms of being at my sharpest, it also has to do with feeling engaged, not just intellectually, but emotionally, spiritually, all of the above, right? So those tasks where I feel like all of uh, my cylinders are firing and I feel really invested on multiple levels, it's much easier to direct my focus and attention. It reminds me of the research on the flow state when people are absolutely at their best because people in that state feel very relaxed, oddly enough, even though they're doing their peak performance. Uh, they don't feel self-conscious and their attention is 110%. They're absolutely focused. Now, I, my own personal belief is that you can get into a flow state by focusing attention if, you're, if you've worked that muscle well. I'm excited to hear what Dr. Amishi Jha has to say. Let's jump in. I'd like to welcome to First Person Plural uh, an old friend, uh, Mishi Jha, who's a professor at the University of Miami, uh, expert on attention, which is our topic, and neuroscientist. And she has a book coming out soon, which I strongly recommend called Peak Mind. And we'll be going over some of the key points in that book as we talk. One is, Mishi, first welcome. Pleasure to have you. Thank you very much. Excited to be here. And. Uh, Let's just start with the basics. What are the key attention systems? I know you've been studying this for decades, but can yeah. you put it in language we civilians can understand? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we all know how powerful this brain system is. I mean, we use it for every single thing we do. And over the course of evolution, you know, we've understood that attention can be parsed into sort of three main subsystems. And they each do sort of different things. So I'll, I can describe the, the kind of technical term, and then I'll say really what, what we mean and how those are used. So, um, you know, the first system that we probably think of most when we think of the term attention has to do with focus. And this is what we technically call the, the brain's orienting system. So this ability to direct our brain's computational resources toward a subset of information. And I always like to use the metaphor for this system of a flashlight. Mm -hmm. So if you're in a darkened room and you want to see some information and have privileged access to the information, you just direct the flashlight or torch, depending on the part of the world you're in, I guess. And whatever it is that, that the flashlight is pointing to, we get better access to. So sort of in complete contrast to that with this kind of narrowed, and that flashlight can, beam can be as kind of narrow or, or broad as we want it to be. Um, but the cool thing about it is it's an, the system isn't just about orienting to the external environment. You can direct that flashlight internally to our, mm -hmm. a specific thought or a memory or a sensation that you're experiencing. But sort of in contrast to that, or almost on the opposite end of the spectrum, is something we call the alerting system. And for this, it's not about narrowing at all. It's about being in the most receptive, broad mm -hmm. mode you can be in. And you almost... You use it when you don't even know what you might need to apply a focused mind toward. 
So I always think about this when I'm driving and I see like a construction site or a flashing yellow light that indicates a strange pattern or, you know, maybe children playing. When you see that kind of caution sign, you don't really know what you're supposed to do, but you know you should be ready for anything. And that sort of readied state is, is this second system, this alerting system. And then the third system, I mean, I think both we know both of these. We know what it means to focus. We know what it means to be ready. But the third system, I think we probably, at least in recent days, with all the challenges that we're facing with a global pandemic and trying to work and deal with children and et cetera at home, this third system is probably the one that we're taxing the most these days. And that is the central executive system, um, which I like to refer to as the juggler, because sometimes it really does feel like we're juggling. All the balls are in the air. We're trying to keep everything going. The term executive is very much like the executive of a company. And the executive's job is not to do every single individual task, but to ensure that all of the uh, goals of the enterprise, whether that's a person or actually an, an organization, uh, and the actions of that same entity are aligned. And so it has this kind of management um, uh, trade-off uh, role that it's some, in some ways it's a, like a dispatcher or manager or something like that, but it's about keeping all the balls in the air and making sure none of them drop. So very different, again, than focusing or broadening. And I think those three systems together can help us understand why attention is so powerful. We can't, I can't think of circumstances in which we don't need one of those three. These days, Amishi, people really complain a lot about being distracted, which impedes attention, basically. What, what harms these systems or what gets in our way of using them well? Right. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because the circumstances are kind of amped up that would potentially cause distractibility right now. I mean, we're already in, a, in an attentional marketplace where there are so many forces in our external environment, whether it's the ping of our phone or news feed or social media mm -hmm. feed, grabbing at us, I mean, grabbing and, and um, seeking out our attention. But then there's this internal side of our distractibility that is equally as powerful and potent to, to derail us. And the way that I've been thinking about this is... You know, there's ca there's categories of thing. You know, we talked about attention sort of as this very powerful function, and though that it may though it may be powerful, there is kryptonite. And so the types mm -hmm. of things that tend to really distract, derail us are things like stress. We all experience mm -hmm. stress, this perceived sense of overwhelm, poor mood or negative mood, and threat. And under those, under those, any of those circumstances, all three of these systems will get derailed, will get uh, compromised. I've heard uh, said that there's a strong connection between disturbing emotions and attention. That emotions <laughs> make us pay attention to this or that. Is that what you're saying? Very much so. And talking to you about this is, is a delight because this is an area that obviously you've written a lot about. Destructive emotions are, in some sense, disturbing and destructive emotions are very similar to the ping of our phone. We cannot help but pay attention to those. They call on us over and over again. And that's actually what leads us to experience this, this notion of stress or even internal experience of threat and poor mood. So they're the internal salience signals that really get our attention going. So what can we do about it? How can you strengthen your attention muscle? Right. 
And this is the uh, this is the big question. And, and attention researchers have been trying to figure this out for decades. In fact, mm-hmm. if you go all the way back to William James, you know, really the first, mm-hmm. the father of uh, of psychology, I would say, but also the first real attention researcher. Um, he talks about this as a fundamental challenge, our distractibility or our wandering mind. And then he, his, his quote about it essentially ends in a very hopeless note. Like this is just the way the mind is and there's not much we can do to help ourselves, right? And I think the, the good news is that we have solutions in, in this day and age. And it ends up that some of those solutions are ancient uh, and have been around for millennia mm. and come from a different set of traditions, whether it's philosophical traditions of the West or, or spiritual and religious practices of the East that have to do with really, I would say most broadly paying attention to our attention. So mm. treating this as an enterprise that's worthy of our effort. So one of the things that I talk about in in um, my upcoming book, Peak Mind, thank you for mentioning it, is how we can train our attention so that it is more protected against these forms of kryptonite. And one of the solutions that we found repeatedly in the lab that is more effective than any other has been mindfulness meditation. Can you tell people what you mean by mindfulness? Yeah, absolutely. So mindfulness is a, this mental mode of this quality of the mind, a way of making the mind that has to do with paying attention to our present moment experience without reactivity or editorializing about the experience, sort of the, getting the broad data of what is an unfolding mm-hmm. moment by moment. And mindfulness meditation practices are about helping us be better able to achieve that mental mode. I mean, this is a, an innate ability we all have, but we are so um, there's so much overlearned and over sort of default tendency of mind to not be mindful that we've got to train ourselves or helping ourselves get trained to do this more on demand can help us. It's interesting that you say they come from philosophic and spiritual traditions because there, isn't there a fundamental way in which our attention defines our reality moment to moment? We 100%. construct our reality with our attention. We, we absolutely construct our reality with our attention. And I think we don't appreciate how much so that is. Uh, but now we know through brain science that, that what we pay attention to reconfigures the entirety of how brain function occurs. It biases, it, attention biases all of the information processing that's occurring in the brain. And this kind of reconfiguring privileges certain information over others so that certain information is going to be more prominent and we're going to be more likely to orient toward that kind of information. And the corollary of that is blind spots, things we don't pay attention to. Absolutely. The blind spots, I think, are, I think are quite interesting. It goes back to this, if we don't know what we don't know. And... I think the first thing that mindfulness training, one of the first things that mindfulness training can help us understand is develop a humility regarding the limitations of our own capacity to pay attention, that we mind wander often, Mm. we're off task often. So I I often hear from people who have just started to try mindfulness or some mind training like that. I can't do this. My mind goes crazy. I I can't stop my thoughts. They just keep coming. What would you say to someone like that? 
good, you're alive and you're a normal human being. <laughs> <laughs> That's the way the mind works. In that way. is the way the mind works. By default, we tend to wander about 50% of our waking moments where our attention is not on the task at hand. And this is not a problem. In fact, this is by evolutionary design. There's a reason our brain goes through the metabolic trouble of doing this. It just happens to be that sometimes it can get, our, get in our way to accomplish the task at hand. So I would not let that be a deterrent, have that be the starting point. What's the good reason for mind wandering? Yeah, so many good reasons. I mean, if we think back to our evolutionary ancestors, if the ability to focus already was very powerful so that you could, let's say you're at a watering hole and you're busy mm -hmm. uh, now, you know, doing the task at hand, whether it's, it's getting uh, hydrated or mm -hmm. potentially, you know, looking for berries or whatever it is, if you were hyper-focused, meaning all you did was focus on that, you'd probably be eaten because you're not paying attention to your environment. Yes. So there's something to this attentional cycling capability that from the get-go has been very, very important for us. In fact, we wouldn't be here to talk about it unless our ancestors successfully did this. So is that inbuilt survival mechanism of a mind which is partly wandering part of the reason why it it seems so difficult to keep bringing your mind back to one thing, which is being mindful. Absolutely. Yes, I think that the cyclical nature of attention, just that it does cycle through different mm -hmm. aspects of our experience and our consciousness, can leave us feeling um, out of control in some sense. Like we don't know where our attention is. It gets pulled and pushed mm -hmm. around in these, in these different ways. But the other thing is that you know, being able to have attention roam in this way um, provides us with more opportunities to potentially take different courses of action that we might not have even considered if we were hyper-focused. So when, when you're being mindful uh, and bringing your mind back to one posture or one object, like your breath, uh, are you going against the grain of how you've been wired in evolution? In some sense, you're helping yourself get more of the reins on your attention. You are going against a default tendency. And I wouldn't say going against, but you're aware that this tendency exists. And if the moment uh, requires you to bring it back, such as in a formal mind mindfulness mm. practice, you do. At other times, you may notice where the mind is and say, I'm fine being off task right now. Even mm. if I thought I wanted to be writing an email, paying attention to my child as she needs my attention is the better use of my uh, my mind right now. So it, I think the thing about mindfulness that's so powerful is that not only does it allow us these tools to improve our focus, but it allows us to cultivate the capacity to know where our attention is moment by moment so we can make better choices regarding what's most appropriate in the moment. Is there any uh, hard evidence that practicing a particular kind of attention like focus in mindfulness strengthens the neural circuitry for that aspect of attention? Yes, oh. that, that is uh, what we're starting to learn. I mean, a lot of that work came from uh, writings that you know you and, and my other hero, Richie Davidson, have, have certainly captured when we look at sort of the Olympians of, of mindfulness meditation, people that have been doing it for decades, really as a full-time uh, profession in some sense we see that there are structural changes, that there are functional changes in the brain. And I think those changes are not general. They're in very specific brain systems that we know have to do with the ability to orient our attention as well as the ability to notice uh, mind wandering. 
I would say the exciting news these days is that you don't need to be an Olympian of, of mindfulness meditation to mm. receive benefits. And the work that we do in my lab uh, is sort of the other end of the spectrum. People that are extremely new to the practice, uh, to these practices, and that may not have even thought this is something that they would be interested in or would benefit from. So people like first responders or military service members and military spouses, athletes, mm. uh, students, they don't have a lot of time. They couldn't devote, uh, you know, probably even a week to a, a full-time retreat, let alone a month or multiple years. So we offer them compact uh, yet powerful practices that they can do over short windows. And we're still finding tractable benefits to these systems, these brain systems of attention. Would you say that there's probably a dose response principle operating here so that right at the beginning you get some benefits, but the more you do, the, the better it gets? Yes, and that's the very exciting news about this practice, I think, that it very much parallels physical exercise. And, you know, if you think about our modern day uh, understanding, no, none of us would be surprised if you, it wouldn't be revolutionary to say, hey, guess what? Physical activity is tied to physical health. But it is a little bit revolutionary to say you could actually train your mind and do mental exercises to improve your psychological health and your performance. And, and even if people believe that, they might say, well, how do you do that? And that's where I think we're, where the action is right now with regard to mindfulness. You know, I'm thinking of the research, pretty famous research by Csikszentmihalyi on flow, where he found that when people were in a peak state, their attention was like 100%. What is the relationship between attention and performance? Yes, I think that the, the thing that's so interesting about flow um, that I think that's what you're uh, yes. referring to with his work and mindfulness is they're not, they're, they're maybe complementary, but they're actually not the same, same thing. Right. When I think about flow, it is obviously a very powerful and beneficial state, but it lacks one thing that I think is particularly hmm. pointedly cultivated with mindfulness training, which has to do with meta-awareness. Oh, interesting. And so meta-awareness oh. is our awareness of our present moment conscious yeah. experience, the, the contents and processes that are at play right now. Yep. So different from kind of metacognition, which is more mm -hmm. like my tendencies of mind. You know, I tend to do this or I tend to do that. This is like, what is my mind doing right now? In fact, if you take somebody like a, a skier and they're in this sort of flow state and you initiate them becoming more meta-aware, they will break out of the flow state. So in some sense, having no meta-awareness in that moment can be, can be beneficial in some respects. But when I talk about peak mind, and you know, that's the title of the book, so it does come up often of what I mean by that. It's not really about achieving some pinnacle experience. It's more about what it takes to experience all the types of things that one might have to encounter being alive. So I almost think about, I mean, if you think about it as literally a literal peak, I mean, on one side of that, uh, Part of the equation is the ability to focus, to really direct, willfully direct the brain. But on the other side, and equally as important, is the ability to broaden and be receptive. So we can almost think about it as doing and being. Mm -hmm. And that both together need to um, kind of allow themselves to go, fluidly go back and forth for us to be able to rise to the challenges of any moment. So I would say it's it's complementary to the notion of flow in some sense, but, but kind of a different thing I'm aiming yes. to 
help people yeah. cultivate. However, uh, in your way of thinking about peak mind, where attention is as flexible as you need it and as maximal as you need in any given way, um, is there a bump in a, a performance generally? Yes, is there some relationship? Absolutely. So go back to your, your actual question, um, which was about performance. That is probably the most thrilling part of this work, especially the kinds of groups that I work with, is that we can find tractable benefits in their performance. So uh, this broader field of contemplative neuroscience is exploring this along multiple domains. So we know, for example, that mindfulness training can help students uh, with their learning, with their comprehension, even things like GRE scores, which people need to have um, high scores on to get into graduate school, for example, yeah. are benefited by, by mindfulness training. And it's sort of in the opposite end of the, the spectrum, uh, people like soldiers, for example, who are trying to get qualified in various aspects of soldiering uh, benefit from mindfulness training in ways that not only help them learn new tasks and new information, but even things like marksmanship, where they're able to steady themselves, even under high pressure mm -hmm. situations to, you know, be able to hit the target, so to speak. Well I can see why marksmanship would demand maximal focus, but the relationship between attention and retention and memory, uh, the GRE example you gave is really interesting. What is the relationship? Attention, memory. Yes, the, the, the short answer is, if you don't pay attention, you won't remember. <laughs> And that's the reality. Yes. And when I say memory there, I'm not talking about procedural memory, like learning to ride a bike or learn a new motor skill, like a new piece of music mm. or something. I'm talking about content knowledge and episodic experience, episodic memory. So the experiences that, that are the episodes of our life. So gaining new information requires at the input stage that we've, we've paid attention. And you mean like in the classroom? Like in the classroom context, or even, you know, yeah. if we think about people that complain about having poor memory, when we really take a look at the challenge points, it typically has nothing to do with their memory. It's that they aren't paying attention to the moment when information is being uh, delivered, where they need to in initially encode it into memory. If that happens successfully, then the chances of retaining it are going to be much higher. If it doesn't, forget it. It never got in. So I almost often talk about it as sort of pressing the record button. Even, even though memory is obviously much more complicated, without attention, we cannot record. Exactly. And does this have um, any way of helping people with their biases, stereotypes? I know that's a really mostly cognitive, but can working with attention help in some way? You know, I think that there are so many biases that we have in the brain I and mean, the brain is built for bias and it's a very handy tool. I mean, when we say bias these days, we don't usually associate it with anything beneficial. It's usually implicit bias that has to do with uh, disparaging and unfair views about particular groups. Um, but this capacity to actually shorthand, take cues from the environment and shorthand is actually quite beneficial to us. Um, and we use it often. And what I think, we could say is that with something like mindfulness training and with the cultivation of attention and meta awareness, we can become more aware of our own biases, mm. which is a point of inter allows us to have a point of intervening should we choose to. So what's the example of that? I, I hear what you're saying, but I can't quite connect it to 
my actual experience. So let's say, I mean, I would say let's let's put implicit bias to the side for, yeah. for a moment and think about some other kinds of biases that the brain holds. So something like a novelty bias. So mm-hmm. knowing that something new in my environment or in my newsfeed mm-hmm. or even in my mind will grab mm-hmm. my attention. And that's the bias that the brain has. So knowing this, you know, you might realize sometimes that you're captured inappropriately by something novel in your environment mm-hmm. um, or something else that I think is can be quite problematic, but but helps us in many ways with our information processing, a confirmation bias. So if we you- hold the particular view, the entire way that we do our information processing is biased toward confirming what we already hold as the view. Yeah. Once we become aware that we're prone to this in any moment, now all of a sudden we can say, ah, I may have that view, but let me look outside of that. Let me broaden out. And I like to think about it as, you know, not only does it help us sort of reframe situations, like, oh, okay, maybe I can think of a different kind of view instead of this one I want to confirm, but really we can deframe. So we can kind of even let the whole structure evaporate to allow data to come in in sort of emergent fashion so we can be better able to, to create informed views that may be more a- appropriate for the context we're in. What about relationships? I know uh, being present to people, which you hear a lot about these days, particularly given the fact we can't interact personally with so many of our friends and family, being present uh, is often uh, you know, talked about appreciatively, but that seems to imply a kind of attention to me. Yeah. I think that if we think about when we feel most connected to people, it's typically in moments where we feel that we have somebody else's full attention. And we know that when we, as our, as you know, actors in the world uh, want to express care, Mm -hmm. concern, interest, it is by the giving of our attention. Mm -hmm. So when we talked about, you know, the flashlight earlier as this orienting system of attention that can bias the brain, to privilege anything that's within that flashlight's focus, we can not only turn that flashlight toward things we want to, meaning the parts of the environment or our own thoughts and feelings, but toward other people. And that has so many powerful effects, not just in in one-on-one relationships, but even things like team cohesion, so that we can start now seeing, do I share a mental model with this person or do I share a mental model with multiple people? as we're trying to execute. Uh, when you say mental goal. model, that's how you think about something. That's right. Business. Sorry, mental model, that's all I mean by it. Some model of how things are going. And you know, often when we say, I'm not on the same sheet of music as you, we're basically yeah. saying, we do not share a mental model. Yeah, exactly. Moment. It's being on the same page. Yeah. It's being on the same page, right. right. But um, that is how uh, I think attention can be so useful in our interactions with other people is we direct our our focus toward them and then we build kind of co-create yeah. uh, shared realities together my big grumble about zoom is that the camera's in the wrong place right oh, yeah. now if i look at the camera i can't have eye contact with you on my screen <laughs> because you're in a different part of the screen right and if we were face to face i'd be looking in your eyes that is how you you develop rapport with someone that's how you let someone know you're really there for them. And you're picking up maximal information about that person, what they feel moment to moment to moment. And it's harder to do on Zoom, I think. That's just my- I think you're completely right. And if, you know, I just finished teaching a class this semester and when you get eyeballs that aren't looking at you 
15, 20 times over, it's that more compounded. Exactly. So I think Uh that, yes, and you know, this is the thing about attention. It's usually yoked with where our eyes are. That's our biggest clue as to what we're paying attention to. Yeah. You use a phrase that I'd like you to unpack, minimum required dose. What is that? When we talked a little while ago about a dose response effect, essentially what we said was just like physical activity, the more you do, the more you benefit when it comes Mm -hmm. to mindfulness training. And my question, because I work with time pressured, high stress, high demand groups, was to find an answer, a prescription, if you will, of the shortest amount of time that would be required for somebody to spend daily to actually strengthen their attention using the kind of metrics that we do in my lab. And that is what I mean by minimum effective dose, the dose Mm -hmm. of daily practice time, formal practice time that you would need in order to be able to track in our objective laboratory metrics or brain imaging, you know, whatever we choose to look at it with changes that are beneficial. And we have done a lot of tracking of this. You know, initially when we were asking people to practice in our training programs, um, you know, something like mindfulness-based stress reduction, which is the most common, you commonly offered mm-hmm. program designed by John Kabat-Zinn, requires 45 minutes of daily practice as part of the program. So you go to a two and a half hour class and then you practice for 45 minutes a day, five to seven days a week for eight weeks. And we tried it. What we found is that most people weren't doing it. I think there's and a high dropout rate. High, extremely high do- dropout rate. And also it felt a little daunting for people. Like if I can't do 45 and if that's the goal, I'm just going to do zero. So we started reducing the required time. Mm-hmm. We said, let's give them 30 minutes. And what we found that's is it. that people still weren't complying. Right. When we got down to between 12 and 15 minutes, we found that people were actually doing it daily. Mm-hmm. And that mm-hmm. doing that amount daily was enough to benefit them. So the compliance to be able to engage in the practice and, mm-hmm. and committing this short yeah. period every day to formally doing it helps. I, re- I recall a saying, the very best form of meditation is the one you'll do. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> it doesn't so, matter you know, how, how long yogis spend practicing every day. If you don't do it, you are not benefiting. What's the least you can do and get some better? You know, it's, I just want to say at the outset that many people, when we offer them what, what I've called the minimum effective dose, might have assumptions about how we do that, that parallels sort of our notion of how drug studies might be done. So it's like we gave people various doses and we said, you know, this was the right prescription. That is not how mindfulness works, right? We tell them to do something, they do it, they don't do it. But what we found through kind of a systematic series of studies is that if you ask people to do 12 minutes, five days a week, they will do it. And when they do it, we find beneficial effects. So if they do more than that, they will benefit more. But if they don't achieve that sort of benchmark, they tend to not reliably and consistently mm-hmm. benefit in their attention. Interesting. So that's like a threshold for That seems to, to be a, an important threshold, yes. And that might be, I, I would assume, a little bit an artifact of how and what you measure. Absolutely. And by the way, you know, this number changes when we talk about people that have active psychological disorders or oh. are, um, you know, have other kinds of challenges in their lives. So Does it get higher or lower? It tends to be a need, the need is higher for more yeah. time. So, for example, with people that are experiencing uh, depressive symptoms or active, have a diagnosis of depression, it tends to be around 30 minutes that they would require on a daily basis to benefit. You don't, do you um, mix it with 
uh, cognitive therapy. I know mindfulness-based cognitive therapy was a bit, very popular approach to depression. That's right. And, and what I'm talking about with the 30 minutes a day is exactly that. Mindfulness-based cognitive therapy where a formal program is learned and then there's daily homework exercises. And just to clarify, you pay, it's, you use your meta-awareness, you're paying attention to your mind. And when you see a thought, which is going to cause you to get bummed out or depressed, like I'm no good, life is hopeless, uh, and so on, you catch yourself and challenge it. And the use of mindfulness is so useful because otherwise it just slips in and does its worst. Exactly. Just like we were talking about a negative novel thought or even yeah. a negative well, well-worn thought is so attractive to attention and it'll just stick around over and over again until we're ruminating on that thought. I have to give a plug for my wife's book, Tar Bennett Goldman emotional alchemy because she integrated mindfulness with cognitive therapy, but she was looking at emotional patterns, habitual ways of thinking. And depression is an emotional pattern, but we all have, you know, nobody cares about me. Emotional deprivation, those patterns are widespread too. Absolutely. I'm a big fan of your wife, so I'm happy to (laughs) say anything that (laughs) make her brilliance known to the world. So absolutely. But what I want to get at is that your ability to pay attention to your own experience in that way is crucial to being able to work with your mind at all. That's right. And, and that seems to be something that you help people cultivate. Yes. And, you know, there's a, the term right now, the kind of term of art for that capacity to pay attention in this self-distanced way is something we call decentering yes. or sometimes called defusion. So you're not fused with the thought, but you're, and when I talk to my kids about it, it's almost like a, a drone's perspective. Like there's some, you're, you're hovering above yourself and you're kind of watching what's going on right now. I, I've heard it called going to the balcony of your mind. That's and, great. And going to the balcony, bird's eye view. These are all really great yeah. metaphors for yeah. what we're doing. And it goes back to what I was saying earlier about the flashlight. You can't both be, you can't be in two places at once. So you're either immersed in the experience, the flashlight is on the sensation, or you're actually at a distance directing your attention. And that distancing itself can be so powerful to first recognize that it's a thought, it's not reality necessarily, and that you can potentially make choices regarding what you want to do next now that that thought has entered your conscious experience. Which gets me really to my last question, which is, can, can you describe for us peak mind at its best? Yeah. I mean, to me, again, my interest in, in, in writing this book and describing what a peak mind is, isn't about achieving some special state. Uh, it's not even about being at your best in some sense. Mm-hmm. It's about being able to maneuver with success mm-hmm. so that you are left as unscathed as possible through mm-hmm. immense, potentially immense challenge Uh, And even to be able to rise to the challenge, whatever it may be in your personal or professional life. And it is going beyond the sort of conventional notions of we need to focus better. We need to be less distracted um, to a more or a broader view of what success looks like. So it's it's not only a peak mind is not only one that can focus. It's one that can be receptive. So if you'd like to, for example, be excellent at communicating you know the conventional view may be well learn about what you want to say 
hone your craft of speaking. And I would mm -hmm. say a peak mind view would be do that. But in addition, hone your capacity to listen so that what it is you say actually is useful in the context that you're in. So it's both these directed or kind of willfully guided ways of making the mind and being receptive and going back and forth uh, as we need to, to, uh, to rise to the challenges that our lives bring us. The book is Peak Mind, Amisha Jha. It's been a pleasure talking to you and I recommend the book to everybody. You know, one of the things um, I, th I was thinking about as Amishi is talking about these different systems of attention is what happens when we're kind of split or called to be uh, engaging with multiple systems at one time. So I think about this as a working parent, for example, I feel like I'm often in the role of the juggler, right? In my, in my own brain. I mean, it's part of, I think what causes anxiety too, is holding all the balls in the air, thinking about all the loose ends that need to be tied. And I'm also trying to parent, <laughs> which requires me to actually bring attention to another human being and be much more in a state of presence um, with the person that's in front of me. And I've been noticing lately that my daughter's asking for more and more of my time. And I'm, I realized I'm like, it's not actually my time that she's asking for. It's my presence that she's asking for because that internal juggler is kind of always there and always on. Um, is, is the juggler the readiness that Amishi was talking about, or is it the focus? Mm, I think it's a combination of both, actually. I think it's really narrowing my focus to attend to her and, and be present, but also, um, yeah, readiness for whatever is emerging. And I think part of that readiness is what it is to be a parent. <laughs> So, and just sort of have that kind of internal system that's always at the ready, waiting for something to, to happen. Because you don't know what the next thing is going to be. Yeah. And then there's the, the executive, the juggler, as you put it, which has a kind of to-do list. You know, we've got to do this. We've got to get ready for school. We've got to pack a lunch. We've got to do this and do that. All... I wonder if people, uh, if we flip between these systems very rapidly. Mm. Mm. That's what it feels like. If I were to sort of take a bird's eye view of myself in a moment, particularly parenting, I think I would probably see myself, yeah, rapidly flipping between those systems, which is really interesting to think about because that image in itself feels a little manic and actually feels like the antithesis of of what we're aiming for with focus and attention, which feels like something a little bit more consistent and steady. But um, yeah, that's interesting. Well, I think that's the way attention works in, in, you know, in our daily lives, that we're going for back and forth amongst all these. For example, in meditation, you have to decide that, that some forms of attention are distractions. For example, when you want to focus on one thing, then the executive, you know, your to-do list is a distraction. Uh, if you want to just sustain readiness, which is another kind of meditation, uh, openness, then actually focus and executive are distractions. And these are different ways of working the muscle of the mind. Hanuman, what do you think? The parenting part of this resonates very much with me. 
I've come to realize a similar thing recently or in the last year or so about attention. I've not thought of it as presence, but really just attention. My children want my attention and it serves so many purposes for them. It, it lets them know that I'm, I care, that I'm, I'm with them. It's a sharing of myself with them. And it offers really deep reassurance that they are loved. Just, just offering attention to somebody is caring for them. And lately I've been really efforting to be attentive with my children, to just play, you know, really just be totally on level and get down and play. And, and it, it matters so much. I can feel the relationships healing uh, for, uh, with me and my kids because in, in their earlier lives, I was so stressed out and I wasn't, I mean, they're only four and six in their earlier lives. <laughs> six months I, ago. I was, <laughs> <laughs> when they were very young, I, I, was, I was so stressed out that I really wasn't able to offer the just basic attention. And, and I felt, I feel that there was some, some harm done there. And, and I feel the repairing of that just simply through being, simply through attending. It's so interesting as you're talking, I'm thinking, you know, I mean, meditation is one clear way to strengthen focus and attention, but I think for me, coaching has actually been a really clear way to strengthen focus and attention. And I've been aiming to do as a parent, what I do with my clients, which is before I go into a coaching session, I very intentionally set everything else aside to show up in full presence. And it's actually been like, I've had to carry that skill into my personal life as a parent, because I'm far less intentional about how I spend my time with my family because they're kind of always here and around. So, so yeah, it's really interesting. I think you could say a partner too, not just kids. Anyone we care about and attend Hanuman, I love your point. Attention is a form of love. And there are also implicit norms for attention. If, for example, I've talked to people who have lived homeless on the streets of Manhattan. They say the most painful thing is that nobody notices them. They don't get any attention. This first episode in our three-part attention and focus series has been about scientific understanding. Tune in next week for part two in the series when we feature a conversation with George Pitagorsky about how attention can play out at the systems level. George talks about how organizations can prioritize their members' attention to work collectively towards common goals. He's an expert in project management and has written several books on the subject, including Managing Expectations, A Mindful Approach to Achieving Success. If you're a parent or educator, you may also be interested in the book The Triple Focus, A New Approach to Education. In it, Daniel Goleman and Peter Senge offer guidance on incorporating the focus-related skill sets self-awareness, other awareness, and systems awareness to help students navigate a fast-paced world of increasing distraction 
and to better understand the interconnections between people, ideas, and the planet. You can pick up a copy in our online store at keystepmedia.com shop. Thanks for listening to First Person Plural, EI and Beyond. Subscribe now and sign up for our newsletter to get notified as new episodes are released. This show is brought to you by our co-hosts, Daniel Goleman, Hanuman Goleman, and Elizabeth Solomon, and is sponsored by Keystep Media, your source for personal and professional development materials focused on mindfulness, leadership, and emotional intelligence. Special thanks to Matea, whose voice you heard at the top of the show, and to today's guest, Amishi Ja. For guest bios, transcripts, and resources mentioned in today's episode, check out our episode notes on our website, firstpersonplural.com. This episode was written and produced by Elizabeth Solomon and me, Gabriela Acosta. Episode art and production support by Bryant Johnson. Music in this episode includes Phase 2 by Zylo Zico and theme music by Amber Ojeda. Until next time, be well. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate our show and submit a review. It helps us spread the word about the show. If you want to go the extra mile to support our show, you can become a patron. For as little as $5 a month, you can get exclusive access to extended interviews and behind-the-scenes content. Sign up at patreon.com slash firstpersonplural.